0: with me to the Acts of the Apostles and we're in the last chapter, Uh, we're in chapter 28. Um, Next week will be our last study in the book of Acts, I'm feeling sad already, I want to go back and do it all over again. Um, But we're in Acts 28 and we're in the last chapter and if you remember Paul was caught in the storm, remember those of you who, who were here last week, we had a map of Paul's journey up. And uh, we looked at the tremendously exciting uh, uh, boat journey or ship journey. If you looked, we looked at the difference between a ship and a boat. And uh, that was chapter 27. And if you remember, Luke was on board the ship because, of course, if you remember, we saw last week that a ship is something into which a boat goes, I think. And uh, then we also found out where the word posh comes from, port side out, starboard home. And uh, so it was a tremendously exciting journey, Acts 27, and Luke was on board that ship, and we're given a very detailed account of that journey. And they shipwrecked eventually after two weeks adrift on the open sea in the midst of that unrelenting northeaster, which was a typhoon, it was a hurricane, and the ship finally hit the reefs and it broke up. And Paul and his companions and all the people who were on the ship they had no idea where they were of course but they were as we find out in the beginning of chapter 28 just offshore of the island of malta in some of your translations it's melita but it's malta and we're going to pick the reading up at the end of chapter 27 and we'll read the first 16 verses of chapter 28 but before we read god's word it is holy and sacred ground. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. And we thank you for, this, for these extraordinary accounts of the Apostles Paul's journey to this, this city of Rome. Paul, a prisoner on his way to trial. And we thank you especially that in the Holy Scriptures you teach us all things we need to know concerning salvation and life, how to live for your glory. Holy Spirit, come this morning, we pray. Grant your blessing. Help us to read, mark, and inwardly digest. And all for Jesus' sake. Amen. To Acts 27 and verse 44, and then we'll go straight into chapter 28. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And after we were brought safely through, we then learned the island was called Malta. Now the native people showed us unusual kindness. Now for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, They changed their minds and said, he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Pubalus, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Pubalus lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honoured us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put po- on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from, then, from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Cotilliae. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant word. Um, Paul was, of course, no stranger to shipwreck. Um, in writing in 2 Corinthians, a letter that had been written over two years before this, this current shipwreck, of which we read in 27, chapter 27, Paul tells us then, He'd been shipwrecked three times. And on one occasion, spending a night and a day adrift on the open sea. But Paul has now made his way to the island of Malta. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us whether Paul was a swimmer. Um, The captain of the ship had given orders as the ship had broken up on the reef barrier just off the shore of Malta that those who could swim... Should make it to the shore, and others should lay hold of whatever pieces of wood or flotsam they could find. It was everyone for themselves. Now Luke does not tell us whether Paul was one of the swimmers or when, whether he would have been like me, who'd been hanging on for dear life. You know, like that Leonardo DiCaprio in the in the in the in the Titanic, hanging on to a piece of wood. That's probably not the greatest illustration because he didn't make it, but. Um, The astonishing thing was that the Apostle Paul comes to the island of Malta. We don't know if he swam or whether he hung on to a piece of driftwood, but he came. And Malta is an island and it's about 18 miles wide and about 8 miles in depth. And Malta lies immediately south of the island of Sicily on the Massana Straits, which is just off the shore, you know, of the tow, of the boot of Italy, and uh, Malta was a barren island, by and large, apart from its principal port. And Malta had been occupied by the um, Carthaginians, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that, before the Romans occupied it. But later on in the 3rd and 4th century AD, we know that there was a thriving Christian community on the island of Malta. Because there are catacombs that you can go to today with engravings on the walls that indicate that there was a thriving Christian community. And somewhere around 7th or 8th century AD, Malta was taken over as that part of the world north of Africa largely was by the Arabs. But Malta received its name from the Phoenicians a long time before Paul ever set foot on the island. And in the Phoenician language, and as it so happens in the Hebrew, phonetically, the word Malta means refuge. That's what it means. The word Malta means refuge. Maltese is the only Semitic language in Europe. I don't know you knew that. And I cannot help but think when Paul lands on the island and learns from the native islanders, because he must have, you know, they must have said, "Where are we? Where are we?" And for Paul to have heard the word refuge, the word malta or refuge, I cannot help but think that for the Apostle Paul it must have been an appropriate name for somebody who had just been shipwrecked at sea. To hear, you know, where are we? Well, we're in the place of refuge. We're in the place of refuge. And I sort of wonder really if the Apostle Paul might not have been thinking of some of the great verses in the book of Psalms that mention God as a refuge. There are wonderful Psalms that are of great consolation to our souls. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Or maybe the the familiar words of Psalm 81. In the setting you remember where the psalmist speaks of He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. I don't know about you, but there are many times when as Christians we have a resource which, which, which others do not have, that we have a refuge. We have a refuge. We have a refuge. And that's a great reminder for Paul that when he arrived on the island, he found his refuge. It was a refuge. And Paul had been delivered once again by the hand of God, had known something of the refuge that exists in trusting in the living God. But there are three things I want us to see in the passage that is before us this morning. First of all, the promise of God. Then we look at the providence of God. And finally, the praise of God. But first of all, the promise of God. Because we closed on that last week. God's promises. And Luke, in deliberately ending chapter 27... And of course there were no chapters when Luke was writing it, but in repeating the fact at the end of chapter 27, at the beginning of chapter 8, that after we were brought safely through. And that is because of the promise that God had given to the Apostle Paul. Now if you remember from last week that the Apostle Paul, he calmed the captain. He calmed Julius the centurion. He calmed the occupants of the ship by telling them that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the typhoon on the previous night, an angel had appeared to him and reassured him that they would get to Rome. He would get to Rome and that all on the board would be safe. God had kept his promise. That's why Luke repeats it twice. God had kept his promise. God had been true to his word. God was utterly dependable. We live in a world where we don't know what is true. Everybody accuses everyone else of lying. Have you noticed that? Everyone accuses everyone else of lying. And the House of Commons has become worse than a a playground. You fibber. No, you're a fibber. You fibber. No, you fibber. But we have a God who is absolutely true to his word. If we believe in God through the lord jesus christ god has kept his promise god is utterly dependable god was and is the one in whom we may put our complete confidence and trust we closed last week with the main point of chapter 27 that paul got safely to shore why because god said he would we will get to safe to glory why because god says we will god is true to his words deliverance from storms deliverance from shipwreck deliverance from a viper's bite god promised that no one would drown and no one drowned and we looked last week at some of the promises we find in the book of acts it's good just to be repeated it's just to repeat just one or two of them for our encouragement Acts 2 verse 21, that clarion verse, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a promise. It's not some who call on the name, it's everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a promise. And then one of the other promises was Acts 17, because he has fixed a day, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a promise. He is coming back and he will judge the living and the dead. In my studies this week, I was looking at the hymn from Fanny Crosby. Dark is the night and cold the wind is blowing. Nearer and nearer comes the breaker's roar. Where shall I go? Or whither fly for refuge? Hide me, my father till the storm is o'er. With his loving hand to guide, let the cl- clouds above me roll and the billows in their fury dash around me. I can brave the wildest storm with his glory in my soul. I can sing amidst the tempest. Praise the Lord. I can sing amidst the tempest. Praise the Lord. Now you and I, of course, are not given any such promise that in every circumstance of life, in every life-threatening situation, our lives are going to be preserved. But I've often thought that we shouldn't think of things only in a a temporal capacity. But our salvation is eternal. If you remember the occupants of uh, United Airlines Flight 93, these things fade into memory, but it wasn't that long ago, September the 11th. Two thousand and one and as the as the United Airlines Flight ninety three it made its journey from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco. And uh, there were Christians on board. They weren't given any such promise. You remember Todd Beamer? Todd Beamer was a graduate of Wheaton College, and he famously said, Let's roll. That's the last words they heard him say, as he Led them to try and seize the airplane from the hijackers, and they crashed it deliberately rather than it, take, it crash in, you know, um, into the into uh, Washington D.C. But Todd Beamer, before he said "Let's roll," which is like a brave, what what they don't what they forget to tell you is that he led the plane in the reading of the Lord's Prayer, and then he read and they and they read together psalm 23 that's courage but he wasn't promised life now the fact that there was a christian on board did not mean that god always promises to keep us from death in every circumstance but there is a truth here and it's applicable to all of us this morning as we read the story that is as we sometimes say we are immortal until our work is done the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once and after that, the judgment. And that much or at least we can draw from this passage that God, if you don't remember anything else, just, just remember this one thing, that God is utterly trustworthy. That God keeps his promises. That God who orders all things, he orders all things. You may think that you're in control of your own life, But God orders all things and he always keeps his promises. There's a second thing I want us to see, and that is the providence of God. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So Luke describes what happens as soon as they land it was rainy and cold. Cumbrian. It was Cumbrian weather. When they arrived, maybe as you read it, there was a nostalgic shiver that went down your spine and you thought of your raincoat hanging up at home. It begins to rain. There's, by the way, there's nothing worse than going out and thinking it's not going to rain and then finding out it's pouring down and you left your raincoat at home. So there's a message there. But it begins to rain and they're soaking wet, of course, and the islanders light a fire because they're cold. And in the, price, in the process of lighting this fire, there probably was a snake, and there was a snake in a place where they lit the fire, or maybe Paul even lifted it, because it was, it was torpid because of the cold, I don't know. And in the heat of the fire, it regained its strength. We're not quite sh- sure how to understand that, but this viper launches forth, and he grabs the apostle Paul by the hand. It's a viper, clearly a poisonous and venomous viper. I found out that there's I found out like this week that there are no poisonous snakes on the island of Malta today. You'd be pleased to know. So if you're going there on holiday, take heart. But that alone, by the way, that alone, that fact alone that there are no poisonous vipers on Malta has caused biblical critics to go, aha Aha, that means the Bible's not true. Now, I don't know how they can get that when you, when you read this detail, but uh, critics of the Bible say, well, the Bible's not true because there's no vipers on Malta today. But just the point is that, of course, what has happened is that in the last 2,000 years on the island of Malta, which is very small, which, you know, Yuta and I have been to Malta, it's very small, that the occupants find, found a way to rid themselves of poisonous snakes. It wouldn't be difficult to do in an island that small. Thus ensuring today that you can go to holiday on the island of Malta as long as you don't go with Thomas Cook. But but what is much more interesting is the conclusion that the islanders reach. Because it's a conclusion that many would reach today. Why do bad things happen to good people? And And their conclusion was because Paul had been bitten by this viper. They were, watching, they were watching for him to swell up or to fall down dead. That he must have been a murderer. That he must be bad. This must, this is, he must be bad for this viper to bite him. That somehow he escaped judgment on the sea, but justice is catching up with him in the end. He deserves this. He deserves this. He's done wrong. And then, of course, they're equally capable of switching it round the other way because Paul is not... He doesn't swell up and fall down dead. He's a God. He's a God. And it's worth pausing just for a few moments this morning and asking us that question. Why do bad things happen to Christians? Paul has been in a storm for the past two weeks. He hasn't endured a life-threatening storm. The Apostle Paul has been incarcerated for the last two years, un- unable to fulfill his desires and dreams, and unable to fulfill his vocation in one sense. Is all of this because of the justice of God has now caught up with him? Is this all Is this all because the justice of God has now caught up with him? This is a very, very, very tragic and erroneous doctrine that if bad things happen to you, God is punishing you. My sister died when she was 36 in 1989. And as she lay on her deathbed, the so-called Christians told her husband that she obviously didn't have enough faith. Otherwise, God would heal her. Which is, apart from being the most pastorally insensitive thing anyone could ever say, It's just wrong. It's just wrong. So is this because the justice of God has caught up with the Apostle Paul? Of course not. Why do bad things happen to Christians? And there are many answers we can give to this question. The first thing, and the obvious thing to say, is that we live in a fallen world. Christians as well as non-Christians, believers as well as non-believers, we're caught up in a world that is fallen, a world that is corrupt, a world that is suffering the consequences of disobedience in the Garden of Eden. And a world, the world in which you and I live is the world that Paul says in Romans 8, that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The rain and the snow falls on the just as well as the unjust. If you're hiking around the lake, those patches of sunshine are not just shining on Christians. Christians get wet as well. We live in a fallen world. Believe it or not, this is not paradise. So do not be surprised, therefore, if the common adversity afflicts the whole of mankind, including believers, including you and I. You remember, again, in 2005, it wasn't that long ago, Katrina, you remember um, Hurricane you know, Katrina? It didn't seek out the believers in the New Orleans or the Mississippi Gulf and pass them by. There was no Passover for Hurricane Katrina. It affected the just as well as the unjust. It is part of living in a fallen world. We do not need to look for mysterious explanations. We're caught up in a world that is groaning, and travailing, but it's longing for the new heavens and the new earth, to dawn. We live in a fallen world. That's the first thing to say. But sometimes suffering comes because we need correction. We need a mid-course correction. The writer of Hebrews forcibly reminds us in the 12th chapter that because we are sons, because we are overseen by a heavenly Father who loves and cares for us, you can expect to be corrected. Hebrews 12, verse 5, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord loves us too much to let us sometimes go on unchecked. You can expect the rod of god's chastisement to come not because you're suffering the judgment of god but you're suffering the chastisement of god it's a correction but the courage, the comfort to take it is proof we are the children of god and that he has not abandoned us to our own way he has not forsaken us sometimes suffering comes because it is part of the process of growing Many teenagers have braces now and uh, I don't know whether any of my mine will but many teenagers have braces but not so many in my generation wore braces. I'm talking men you know dental braces you know, many have braces now why because so that they can have this gorgeous photogenic smile by the way um, apparently it's, it's completely unfair of course isn't it it's completely unfair but Brits have a reputation in the world. Did, 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 did you know that, of having bad teeth? Um, cause, cause w- w- because we lived in Vienna, Austria, for 16 years, and I was the director of the Christian school, and they did once, they did a, a, a joke, which was 13 things you didn't know about James. It was called 13 things, and I won't tell you what 12 were. Um, but one was, we don't think he's a true Brit, because he's got all his teeth. So, um, completely unfair... Completely unfair. But what a wonderful age we live in. But I actually know, because my mother loved me, <laughs> I know from bitter personal experience that dental braces hurt. They really, 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 really hurt. And because I had one across my front teeth. But they are there to enable us to grow. So we have to have pain in order to grow. If you ask a physiotherapist of the pain of post-surgery physiotherapy, if anyone here has had surgery, I've had quite surgery quite a few times, and I really, you know, I was really dreading that military nurse who came out and to get me out of bed. You know, I thought I'm in hospital, I'm not in the army. You know, I, you know, (laughs) I only had surgery yesterday. This isn't boot camp. Will you not just let me just sleep for a day? But they don't because it is for your benefit. They get you out of bed. They feed you carrots and get you out of bed. And it's painful and it's arduous. And you wish that she would go away. But it's for your good. It is in order that you might grow. And sometimes the cause of suffering is, and this is really important, is that we might depend on God. Sometimes I believe that suffering comes into our life so that we might exercise faith in the living God. We aren't told by Luke as to the cause of why Paul had spent two years in prison. But I cannot imagine but Paul had pondered that over and over during the long watches of the night as he spent those months in Caesarea. And I cannot imagine but that he thought about it in the shipwreck at sea. Yet another shipwreck. And I cannot imagine as he lands on the island of Malta, why is God dealing with me in this way? And I cannot imagine, but the Apostle Paul thought about this as the snake got hold of his hand and bit him. Why has God allowed this to happen to the Apostle Paul? And we do not know the answer. We can surmise and we can conjecture, and like Job, but we're called upon to trust the living God, even when the lights go out, and to lay hold of his hand and to take his hand in ours and walk by faith and not by sight, trusting the God who works all things together for good. All things for those who love him. And even if that does not give me the explanation and the reason for why suffering has come into my life, but Paul was not experiencing the vindictive hand of justice here. Neither was Paul a God. But one thing is for sure, through these trials, Paul learned to trust the living God, perhaps in a way he hadn't trusted him before. And if you think about the richness of his ministry, in the frustration of incarceration, and in the frustration of another shipwreck, the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4 verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's a tremendous testimony, isn't there, about faithful Christians. And we—and I'm sure you've all come across them, who that verse is true of. That in whatever situation they are find themselves in, they are content. So we have the promise of God, we have the providence of God, and then we have the praise of God. The third thing, as we close... And you see that most eloquently in verse 15. And the brothers there, when they'd heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius, Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And after you know, after these three months on this island, having ministered to this chief man, the head honcho, Pubulus Paul was used by God to heal his father from fever and dysentery. Do notice Luke's graphic description of what was wrong with him, again showing that this is an eyewitness account this wasn't just made up and after three months an Alexandrian ship that had taken refuge in Malta for the winter and now is setting sail for Italy, Luke describes that at the prow of the ship were the twin heads as a figurehead, in Greek mythology they would have been Castor and Pollux and their mother was leader, they had different fathers Castor was the mortal son of Tinderas. The king of Sparta, while Pollux was the divine son of Zeus. That's the Greek mythology. And, it, and in Alexandria especially, these twin gods were thought to be good luck for sailors. And they put in at Syracuse on the east coast of Sicily. They spent three days. They sailed to the important port city on the toe of Italy of Regium. And then after one day, the south wind sprang up. And on the, s- the two days, they managed to make the 180-mile trip to the port city of Putilai, and there Paul disembarks. And a couple of interesting things occur that we cannot help avoid making a comment or two about. First of all, the apostle Paul is given leave to seek out the brothers in the city. Is that not interesting? He's a prisoner. Is it not It's not surprising that there were brothers in the port city of Italy. What is surprising is that he was given leave to go and minister to them. And in verse 14, as we read the passage together, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. It's almost as though Luke is so anxious to get the Apostle Paul to Rome is that he gets there too quickly. Because he says at the end of verse 14, before he's got to Rome and so we came to Rome. If you're reading the King James, the King James cheats. I'm sorry about that, about the King James cheats, because the King James says, and so we went towards Rome. But that is cheating from the original Greek. So that's not the solution to the problem, because the Apostle Paul does not actually get to Rome until verse 16. And, uh, And the brothers there, when they'd heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. Verse 15 tells us that the Christians from the city of Rome set out from Rome to three taverns. Strange place. It's not a pub, by the way, but it's a place which is 33 miles from Rome. And then to the Forum of Appius, which is on the Appian Way, which is 43 miles from Rome. And only after that does Paul get to Rome. William Ramsay wrote a great book on Paul's travels. And he says that the first reference is a reference to the administrative center of Rome, and verse 16 is a reference to the city itself. So it's a bit like saying that you've reached London when you get to Stansted, you know, because they say they know London Stansted, and it's nothing to do with Stansted, you know, London at all. But there's a sadness here as well, because years later, after the Apostle Paul would be released from this imprisonment in Rome, and after the Apostle Paul had been released from his house arrest in Rome, the Apostle Paul would be recaptured. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, his farewell epistle, and he mentions that Onesiphorus has found him, having found it difficult to find where Paul was incarcerated in Rome. And you know, where were the Christians then in Rome? Because Onesiphorus could have gone to any of the Christians in Rome and said, where is Paul? But but evidently they did not know nor had they made perhaps any great attempt to find him. But right now, the Apostle Paul is thankful. The Apostle Paul is grateful. He sees these Gentile Christians from Rome coming out to meet him, and he thanks God and takes courage. God is with him. God has blessed him. The Apostle Paul has learned, despite his incarceration, despite his trials, despite the setbacks and difficulties, to bless God in every circumstance. Oh, my dear friend, that there be a lesson to us this morning as we take, that we take away with us to thank God, to thank God, and to take courage in every circumstance and trial. And to be grateful in particular for the communion of the saints and the fellowship of the church in times of difficulty. The last lesson in Acts next week, Lord willing, but let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul. I pray, Father, that we would thank you in every circumstance, that we would take courage, and that we would be grateful in particular for the communion of the saints and the fellowship of the church. In Jesus' name, amen.